Welcome to Generally Curious, your gateway to the world of generalists. I'm Millie. And I'm Lindsay. Together, we're embarking on a journey to uncover the stories, insights, and wisdom of some of the most dynamic and versatile minds of our time. We dive into the experiences of those who break the mold, those who dare to blend, mix, and weave through various disciplines and industries. From entrepreneurs and artists to scientists and educators, our guests are the embodiment of curiosity and adaptability, paving their own path in the future of work. So whether you're a budding generalist, a seasoned polymath, or simply someone who loves a good story of innovation and resilience, you're in the right place. Get ready to be inspired, to think differently, and to embrace the endless possibilities that come from being generally curious. Nikita's insights and experiences are nothing short of inspiring for anyone looking to navigate the ever-evolving landscape of interdisciplinary work and careers. Without further ado, let's jump into this enlightening conversation with Nikita Kondwala. Nikita, welcome to Generally Curious. I'm so excited to have you here. How are you doing today? I'm good. This has been something I've been looking forward to for a while. So very excited to be here. We crossed paths a couple of months ago and we really bonded while sitting in a little London park, eating some street food from a van. And we really just got onto this whole like generalist thing and there was so much alignment. So I'm so delighted to have you join us today. And I know from now understanding a bit more of your story, it is incredible. And your background is amazing. And I know that our listeners are going to have loads of insights to learn and take away from you. When I was researching your background and what you've been doing throughout your career, I noticed that in your early career, you had a high number of, you know, internships or quote unquote shorter stints at some really amazing companies like McKinsey, Rolls-Royce, LinkedIn. I'm curious, what did these early experiences teach you about your career? What if I start? Um, I was thinking the same thing. I was like, <laughs> we are hitting hard with this first question. Let's, Let's go do it. straight for it. Honestly, I think that getting a bunch of experiences and quite diverse experiences as well, very early on in my career, some actually quite a few before I'd even graduated from university, was something that later in my career I've now learned an actual term for which is basically treating your career as a bit of a science lab. And I kind of did this naturally when I was a bit younger because I was just so generally curious about everything. And I was like, oh, well, if I'm curious about this thing, maybe I can just find some way to get a bit of experience at it. Maybe I can do this internship or start a society or start a business or whatever. And the thing about that's amazing about being at university, which I think people often forget is that you have often, if you're in a lucky position, very little to lose. There's no risk, right? Involved, or at least there's significantly less risk often. And so I really took advantage of that. And as I said, now I'm a bit more experienced, a bit more worldly, and I've had those experiences. I realize now um, I'm actually reading a book at the moment called Designing Your Life, it's by two um, professors at the Stanford Life Design Lab. I'm not sure if you, any of our listeners have come across it, but basically they talk about this concept of wayfinding, which is essentially the art of finding your way when you don't actually know the destination that you're going, 
um, towards, but you do know like the vague direction and you kind of know, you maybe have a bit of a compass, but you don't have a map basically. And so that is very much a mentality that I use. And you know that Millie in my career now when I'm evaluating new opportunities, I'm like, does this align with my values? Is this an experiment that I'm excited about running? And if that experiment goes well and I get a lot of energy from it, I'm working with brilliant people, I'm learning a lot, then I'll double down on it. And I think that's my way of building quite an intentional, quite an intentional generalist career. And so, yeah, all in all, I really love that approach. But at the same time, it's not for everyone. I love how you just phrased that in terms of you've got a compass and not a map. I was, I haven't felt so seen in a long time. So <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much so for that. When you were reflecting on your career journey so far, is there any particular moments that really stand up for you? They could be, you know, the highest highs, the lowest lows, any pivots along the way? There, there have been a lot of pivots. I think that if I, if I think about kind of pivotal moments of choosing to start something or choosing to stop something or quit something are definitely the ones that I remember the most and have definitely been the spikes or the peaks and troughs that I've learned the most from, as is natural. So maybe to give a couple of examples, I remember my first job out of um, uni was at LinkedIn. I was a data analyst and I actually really loved the company. I loved the people. I was learning quite a lot, but ultimately I just didn't really enjoy my job. I didn't love data and I missed the pace of the startup world. And making that decision to what felt like throw away a really incredible opportunity for that stage of my career, particularly, and what was a really competitive grad program felt almost naive and a little bit stupid in my head. And I think that feeling has often come back over the past few years as I've made similar decisions, like kind of what are you doing? And I think that is often an internalized feeling based on, you know, the feeling that we as generalists often get from people who maybe aren't generalists or don't get the squiggliness, if that's a word, it is now, of our paths. Because it's it's kind of like, why are you, like, you've kind of got a good thing going. Why are you making this decision? And it is that curiosity and it is that generalist interdisciplinary nature that often pushes us to do something that is maybe a bit out of the box or make a decision that other people can't understand. And so for me, that's been one of the big learnings, Lindsay, when I look back is actually following your gut, even if ultimately it ends up probably not being the best decision you could have made, which I've been that a lot sometimes, you still learn so much from it, right? And I wouldn't have changed any of those experiences now. What I've gathered from conversations from a lot of generalists is there's a pride in the learning journey that isn't necessarily taken by folks that take more traditional career paths. And that's what I always appreciate about having conversations within the generalist world community is because we're constantly being like, okay, maybe you totally jacked that thing up. But what did you learn? What do you think about that? And being able to really pick that apart is so special. I completely agree. And there's also this weird pattern. I don't know if you've noticed of like, people celebrate failure only in hindsight. People, and actually, Millie, this is what I love, and I've told you this about your content, which is like you celebrate the peaks and the troughs and the learnings that come with them as you go through the journey. 
which makes so you, it makes you so much more relatable for so many people who are maybe at the start of their journalist journey or further on, but just don't see those stories. Because it's really easy when you're at like the end of the journey and you've reached that, you know, peak of success to be like, oh, by the way, 10, 15 years ago, this really terrible thing happened and I completely failed and I was a reject. Like, yeah, okay, we feel sorry for you. We're sorry you went through that. But it feels so much more authentic and genuine when you share it as you're building, right? Agreed. The the other thing too, before we before we jump to the next question, I think so much of what we're taught and what we've internalized is that the opposite of success is failure. And I am not going to take credit for this quote by any stretch of the imagination, but I don't actually remember who said it or who taught it to me. But I was told the opposite of success is not trying. And as someone who's avoided the word try for a really long time, I'm like, either you do something or you don't. What do you mean? Like, there is no in-between. There is no gray area. But the reality is, especially in the entrepreneurial space, in the founder space, in the startup space, the opposite of success is definitely not trying. Like, you're not even willing to put yourself out there. And to your point, that is what Millie so eloquently does so well. Yeah. I'm also curious, Nikita, like, I feel like the generalist journey, when I reflect on my own, the squiggliness, as you coined the word, there's these kind of pivotal moments, these moments where we feel like we're at these crossroads. And because we have these really broad skill sets, it almost feels like there's so many options that how do you know which road to go down? And I'm just curious if you kind of look back on your own experience, say, for example, when you were at LinkedIn, how do you evaluate which kind of road you want to go down when you're at these crossroads? In the spirit of sharing transparently as we're going on the journey, I have made some really questionable decisions in my career. And that's my own judgment of the situation, not kind of any external judgment. And again, I'll give a couple of examples that really kind of stick out to me. And one was the company that I chose to join after I left my LinkedIn job, um, which actually wasn't the company I was meant to join. I was meant to start something, but that's a whole other story <laughs> for a different time. Ended up being a really bad experience. And that was as a result of me not following a gut feeling that I had about the people in the company and the people leading the company it was as a result of not doing sufficient due diligence about the space, the problem, again, the people who were actually leading the company, what they'd done previously, people that they'd worked with before. And lastly, I think it was as a result, and this is kind of a point that I think is really important to make, it was as a result of being young and not trusting my own decision-making capability. And I think at all stages of your career, maybe particularly as a woman, particularly if you're young, all of these sorts of things, you do tend to second guess yourself, especially if your self-worth is not in a place that is supremely high. And mine definitely was in an okay place at that point, but I didn't believe in myself enough to actually follow my gut instinct, even though that would have been the harder thing to do. It was easier to take the role and... 10 months later, when I left, because it was really not a good culture and situation, that was one of the best decisions I've made. But ultimately, again, I wouldn't have changed that because the amount I learned about how not to run a company 
over the course of that time. I can say this, right? I can say this. And um, all of the things that that gave me in terms of as I've progressed on my journey, the things that I then now take into working relationships and take into companies and organizations that I support are really informed by those experiences I had. So I think, yeah, to answer your question, Millie, that's one example of a decision where I really didn't, you know, and hindsight's a gift, right? But I wouldn't have made that same decision now. And I think there's also no shame in, again, the squiggliness, right? I, as you know, Millie, I'm currently working at um, a university called the London Interdisciplinary School where I used to work a year ago and I'm a pretty proud Boomerang employee. (laughs) Again, there's a bit of a stigma attached to going back to a place that you already worked, right? Because it's like, oh, should you not have moved on and like done something different? And actually, this is the best job I've ever had. I love the team. I love what we're trying to do. I believe so strongly in the mission. Why wouldn't I go back if I had the chance? So yeah, decision-making I think is very tied to self-worth. And I'm curious about the experiences that you've both had with that as well, because I think it's one of those things that it would be great to share more about because I'm sure everyone has that moment where they're like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? Yeah, I mean, I'm like in real time going through it in this this moment of there's a job opportunity on the table but by saying yes to that what else am i saying no to and i've never fully leaned into that framework and recognized you know as as much as energy is infinite i'm just a person and energy is not infinite and so if i'm going to choose to make a choice to go down a more, you know, quote unquote, stable path. Is it really stable? Or especially in I'm more in the the founder space, or is it the opportunity to take that bet on yourself? And so I think to your point earlier about self-confidence and really leaning into that, I think especially as women, that's something that across the board is just taking a lot of personal work and undoing to get to that place. Yeah. Yeah. Opportunity cost is real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Without I, a doubt. I didn't want to love again. But now we're slow dancing. I say to all my friends. Well, I think one thing that stands out to me from the well, many things that Nikita says, but one in particular is that even if something is a bad, quote unquote, bad experience, you learn from that experience what not to do. And I think there's actually huge value in learning what you don't want and learning what doesn't work for you so that you can go and not repeat those mistakes, which personally, I never quite figured out, which is how to go from being a founder to being an employee. That transition period for me, I've been working in startups for so long now, and I think I feel most comfortable in that kind of early stage, whether that's building my own company or whether it's building someone else's as a very early employee, because it means I get to really flex those generalist strengths. And I would love to understand what advice would you give to folks if they are kind of in this similar position? Maybe they have been a founder, maybe they're a creator, and maybe they're making that transition to employee. What advice would you give to them? Oh, let's talk about identity crises. (laughs) (laughs) That's the first thing that comes to mind. Um, As you can tell, I like talking about things that generally 
are not, yeah, are not spoken about. But I, yeah, I have to say that from my personal experience, I found that transition difficult. And I say that as someone who from a young age, not a really young age, but ever since I was exposed to the world of entrepreneurship, being a founder, the pace and excitement, adrenaline of the startup world, I've wanted to found. And I was definitely someone who was, and I don't want this to sound really negative because it's not, but kind of taken in by the glamorization and glorification of entrepreneurship. And again, I get why that's done. And I get why a lot of founders, yeah, like they feel the need because ultimately they got to put food on the table. They got to make the business work. The revenue's got to come from somewhere. And often that comes from attracting great talent through glorifying the journey. But when you become a founder, you realize that obviously you're probably down here a decent amount more than when you're up here in terms of your emotional journey. And I think that, you know, resilience, as we all know, is a key part of being a founder. And some people, I do think, just tend to have a bit more ingrained resilience. Obviously, for a lot of people, it's built over time. But I think that the other thing I'd say about that transition from founder to employee is that there's a notion in the labor market that if you have the skill set to be an exceptional employee, then you probably don't have the skill set to be an exceptional founder. And often vice versa. I think this is talked about more the other way around. So people saying, oh, you've been a founder and you've exited your company or your company's failed. Are you going to go get a job? Most founders' reactions are like, oh my gosh, no, what? I can't, I can't be an input. Can I, I have to work for someone else? What are you saying? And that makes sense, right? When you've had the agency and autonomy and the creative freedom to craft your own baby and bring it into the world and grow it and scale it, it's kind of hard to suddenly be answering to someone, be managed by someone, basically fulfill someone else's agenda. And the same is true the other way around. But I think from the advice standpoint, what I'd say is don't let those narratives cloud what you need in the present moment. For me, coming out of my latest founder journey and the failure that came with that, I knew that I needed a little bit of freedom and agency, but I also needed some financial stability and structure. And for me, I've kind of carved that route by having a part-time job that I really love, but also doing freelance and consulting stuff on the side. And for me, that's a really great balance. So I guess the bottom line is don't be taken in by those notions of what aren't normal, what is normal. Um, As a generalist, it's hard to, to ever really get around that. And just do the thing in the moment that really feels right for you. I'd love to talk a little bit through just these career taboos. Like what are these expectations that we're making up that are coming out of nowhere, whether it's you have to hit something by a certain age, you know, with all of Forbes 30 under 30 and 40 under 40 and all of these lists and these, you know, PR campaigns, which, you know, debatable as to as to the efficacy of those. But I'm just wondering how how do you react when someone asks you why you've never been in a role for more than a year and how you can still be an expert, even if you're a younger generalist. Yeah. I was actually asked that question on a podcast a few months ago, like, oh, and again, it wasn't coming from a bad place. It was coming from a place of curiosity of what is the reason that you have never been in a role for longer than a year. And quite frankly, like that is something that even in 2023 is 
stigmatized a little bit, or at least even if it's not stigmatized, people have questions, which to be fair, I think is completely reasonable. The workforce, the way the labor markets worked, the way the economy has worked for so many decades means that we do have pre-established norms, right? About what success looks like, what having a linear career that has a clear path of progression looks like. But ultimately, it's easy to get phased by those things because, again, people are coming from a place where they have an established default or norm. And what you're presenting to them in your story, in your path is different and they don't know how to bridge that gap. And so I do find it difficult sometimes. And I'm still learning how to kind of, Millie and I were talking about this earlier, but craft my personal narrative arc as a generalist. It's a really hard thing to do. But I think when I do get those questions that sort of start to gnaw away at my own like decision-making ability again, or my self-worth, I just try and remind myself of the reasons that I've done something. So to take that example of the, the never spending a year in one role, I know that the reasons I've had to leave every role or job or company that I've been a part of have been absolutely the right reasons. I've never actually regretted leaving something or quitting something. And it's interesting. I think Stephen Bartlett talks about this, this idea that like winners have to quit. Like the only way you can become a winner is to quit the things that aren't working. And quitting can come in many forms, right? It can come in the form of saying no, or it can come in the form of um, actually just quitting a job that's not working for you. It can come from quitting a workplace where the culture is really toxic. So I actually hadn't reflected on that much, but I do think now looking back, I don't regret the decision to leave something. Um, I regret more the decisions to start things, which is quite interesting. But yeah, I think if you remind yourself, I've done this because I believe in an experimental lab-based approach to building my career. And ultimately I am the CEO of my own career. No one else is. Then I feel much better about the situation. <laughs> totally. Totally. No, I agree with you a hundred percent. I'm curious just to poke at a little bit when you're reflecting in hindsight as to your decisions to start things. Where is that pressure coming from? If it's not like you're not listening, it's, it sounds to me like you're not listening to that internal voice, that internal gut feeling. And then there's a cognitive process that's like, okay, I'm going to convince myself that this is the right move. Okay, I guess this is the right move. And then you're in it. And then you spend, you know, eight, 10, 12 months doing it. And then you're like, should I listen to that? What is that process like for you? Yeah, really fascinating question. I think part of it for me personally is the result of that glorification of entrepreneurship and founder life that I was talking about before. Because I told myself the story of like, being a founder is so important. I want to do this. Then you start to, everything starts to center around that in a way, because that's the kind of singular goal you're aiming for. Now, having been quite burnt by the startup world, I still love it, right? I still have a good relationship with it, but I no longer have this burning desire to be a founder. Um, it'll probably happen at some time. I'm, I'm almost definitely going to start things, you know, throughout the rest of my career. But I think what feels way healthier now is that there's not this incessant rush associated with, I have to do it now. I have to do it by this age. This is the universal definition of success. I think through trying and failing at a bunch of different things, I've let go of those 
societal definitions of success and have really embraced, okay, like I'm choosing to do it differently. I am choosing to build my career differently. I need to lean into everything that comes with this, including the judgment, including the questions, including the trade-offs. But ultimately, this is what makes me really happy. And yeah, I think that's been a really big factor in me being able to let go of all of that and just do what feels right for me. So this kind of leads us perfectly into something that you are really particularly interested in, which is the future of work. Now, the future of work, that gets thrown around quite a lot, right? Kind of like the title generalist, it can be quite ambiguous and there can be a lot of different definitions and a lot of people with different perspectives. So I guess like maybe it could be helpful to start with a a, your own definition of how you think about what the future of work is. The future of work is many things. I think the reason, one of the main reasons why the future of work has become a very in vogue term, I'd say since 2020, is obviously because of COVID and the really significant impact that had on our ways of working, particularly when it came to hybrid, remote, working from home, but in a lot of other ways too, like displacement effect where everyone was basically leaving their jobs because they realized that life is short. They were losing loved ones and actually they weren't spending their time in a way that was fulfilling to them. And then I think we had COVID and then, you know, we're currently in a cost of living crisis. There have been swathe after swathe of mass layoffs across not just the tech sector, but more broadly across industries. Add to that everything that's been happening in technology and with generative AI And it's a lot of change in the space of even just three years. And so I think this has just raised a lot more questions for people in terms of what does the fabric of the future of work actually look like? And it kind of feels like it's being torn apart a little bit, right? The things that we had made as assumptions that would exist in the future of work, like certain roles, are now people are saying that actually AI is going to displace those roles and those roles aren't going to be needed. So instead, you need to reskill or you need to upskill yourself in AI, whatever it might be. To speak about, I guess, a little bit of why it fascinates me, like my fascination with the future of work comes because I am really, really interested in why people choose to do with their lives what they choose to do. Because for me, those decisions that we make as individuals and collectives are exactly what shapes our future as a society, right? And sometimes I think people forget that actually the decisions you make about how to spend the 80,000, 90,000 hours of your career over the course of your lifetime is that's the vast majority of your life. Like you should spend time making those decisions. Um, it's very ironic that I say that after everything I've just said, <laughs> but we're learning. <laughs> it's a work in progress. And um, so, yeah, I find that fascinating and, and Millie knows this, but I guess my personal part of my personal mission is to figure out how we can mobilize more people around meaningful problems. Because I think that there are so many challenges we're facing as a society right now. And some of them are a lot more, you know, mainstream to talk about, like the ecological crisis or even increasingly the mental health crisis, the cost of living crisis. But some of them are still completely taboo topics, um, like the young male crisis, for example. 
And I think that it's just incredibly important that we create spaces for people to discover, you know, what their unfair advantage to contribute to, whether it's, you know, the world at large, whether it's their community, whether it's just their family, like whatever the scale you're looking at, impact is impact. And it's so important, whatever scale. And so, yeah, that's what fascinates me about it. And I just think we are going through a monumental shift in terms of what the world of work looks like. I also think that AI has meant that we have more options than we've ever had before about how we can collectively shape the future of work, whether that is a four-day work week or whatever it might look like. And that to me is incredibly exciting. Let's talk predictions. From your perspective, how do you see this future of work evolving? What does that look like to you? I'll maybe name three trends and I'll try and remember them all now that I've, I've tied myself to three. But the first one is definitely around AI and technology. I don't know if you've heard of this concept of a centaur, but in machine learning and in chess as well, the concept of a centaur basically refers to when you combine the computational power of a machine with the intuition of a human. And in chess, the best performing teams are not only human or only AI. They're actually combinations of both. They always outdo the solely human or solely AI teams. And I love this analogy because I think the same is true for AI in the world of work. Um, Right now, part of what I do focuses on upskilling teams with AI skills because a human team that is augmented by AI, I truly see as being the most highly leveraged, effective teams of the future. But again, like with most trends and technologies, there is a bleeding edge of people who have the resources to be at the front of that change. And then the people who unfortunately are lagging behind through no fault of their own. And those are the people I'm really keen to help lift up because we have the opportunity to really level the playing field, but it's going to take a lot of work. So that's trend one. Trend two is that I think careers in general, in true generalist fashion, are already becoming way less linear and a lot more parallel, if you will, or non-linear. You know, portfolio careers are rising in interest. Fractional work is becoming massive. 50% of the global workforce is going to be independent by 2030. And by independent, it's a, it was a WEF study, I think, that said this, that that constitutes contractors, freelancers, founders, part-time workers, all of those things. 50% is a lot of people. And I don't know if we have the infrastructure to support that or if companies are ready to support flexible working to such a degree. And then I think the last thing is more of a hope than a prediction, which is that I think our economy for too long has been focused on roles and quite arbitrary roles as opposed to projects and problems. And I know that Generalist World this week or last week had an article about roles and rules. And it really got me thinking reading that because it just made me realize how, as I said, arbitrary, you know, a role often is and how generalist in nature so many of the problems companies are facing actually are. And so what I hope to see is more of a project-based, problem-based economy. And that's going to take a lot of work from both employers and candidates and everything in between to rethink like what that looks like. But 
yeah, that's definitely something I think about. I love that so much. And especially from, I'm based in New York and so from the United States perspective in terms of not having universal healthcare and not being able to have that infrastructure, like you hit the nail on the head in terms of like the infrastructure definitely is not there. But just what you just said about imagining a project-based and like problem-based workforce, like how amazing would that be? Like if RFPs just went out and people were like, hey, I know how to fix that. And you were had like some sort of you know, baseline ability to keep your roof over your head to your point about the cost of living. Like I said, I live in New York. I feel that deeply. So thinking about that, do you think that there's going to be a big need, want, have to have for generalists in this impact space of AI and being a specialist in that way? Yeah. I think it was A16Z that recently released an article that said, and some of that stuff's quite questionable, I have to say, but one article was about how um, the general baseline skill level for any skill, um, and let's, for the sake of it, just say a specialist or hard skill, is with generative AI, ChatGPT, all of these different AI tools, the baseline is going to be much easier for everyone to reach because they have these tools to help them. And if they upskill sufficiently, they will meet that baseline. So in general, we're going to see this like pretty good foundational level of work from people. But the problem with hard and specialist skills is that they have an increasingly short shelf life. So right now, the average shelf life of a technical skill is less than 2.5 years, which means that that technical skill will be replaced by another one that's more up and coming, more in demand in less than 2.5 years. Which means if you're a university student who chooses to, I don't know, study to become a software engineer, by the end of your degree, the languages, the frameworks, everything that you studied could very well be outdated. Or there could have just been a massive AI revolution, you know, as tends to happen. And so I think the point I'm trying to make is that generalists with the durable, as I like to call them, timeless skills that we have that really go across so many of those specialist skills and bring the dot, like really connect the dots together. Those are the skills that are going to be like in such high demand because those are the ones that are pretty irreplaceable, at least right now. And so, yes, I think there's this, I hope to see, and I do anticipate that we will see a real rise in generalist talent and more generalist job adverts and watch this space because it's counting. Um, but yeah, and I think that's really exciting for people in the generalist community. So why does it feel like the higher you take me, the further I'll fall, thought it was worse to love me? I would love to just tie that back to something you said earlier, which was that the real power, like real true power and real true catalyst for change comes from when you combine two things. So that might be humans and machines. And I think there's a real parallel here that is clicking off in my mind, which is that like, to be clear, we are not like anti-specialist. In fact, I'm like, we deeply, deeply need super expert, you know, someone that studies one particular problem for like a long time in their career. 
And my whole perspective is that it's not a, a matter of verse, but it's a matter of plus. And it's just like you said, you know, instead of we're not like humans or machines, we're like humans plus machines. Sounds quite like dystopian, doesn't it? But I, I really see the parallel there between, I think there's a temptation, especially with like social media to have this very like polarizing, like pick a side where I think the true power of like innovation and change and solving these big problems is when you bring people who have these diverse perspectives, who have these diverse backgrounds and experiences and knowledge. And when you put them in a room and you help them collaborate. Yes. Could not agree more. Yes. I love oh. it. <laughs> I love that so much. So much. Yeah. It's not picking a side. It's all sides. And there's so many. So many to choose from. Well, I could talk to you all day. I know Millie could. Millie and I already basically talk all day. So never mind in <laughs> podcast form. So we could both talk me in literally all day. But before we let you go, we do have our lightning round of questions that of we ask every guest. So I'm three ready. questions. The first one is: How do you define generalist? For me, a generalist is a dot connector, someone who connects ideas, perspectives, disciplines, experiences. Mm, that was beautiful. So succinct. <laughs> Just going to go wow. ahead and pop that on the website. The <laughs> right, exactly. I was like, did somebody write that down? Amazing. Next one. What is a product or a tool that has made an outsized difference? to your career journey? I'm going to mention the one that I think particularly as a generalist has been madly useful, which is Notion. I do think that as a portfolio careerist, freelancer, hundreds of plates spinning, all of that kind of stuff, the flexibility that it has along with the, just like the usability of it. I'm like a big brand loyalist. So if I like a tool, I will talk about it all the time. And I talk about Notion a lot. I love it. Mm. And last, but certainly not least, what do you wish that the world knew about generalists? I wish the world knew how much they need us. You know, I think Millie put it so well, like we know as generalists how much we need specialists, you know, we're, we love collaborating. It's in our nature. And yeah, together, I think the way generalists and specialists can push the world forward and, you know, really push innovation and progress forward is incredible. But that comes from mutual respect. And I think the world realizing that actually there is extreme strength in generalism and it definitely is not something to be stigmatized or thought less of. That was amazing. Nikita, thank you so, so much for joining us. I have learned so much from you. I think you have such a, a gift at being able to make the complex quite simple and straightforward and your presence alone is just incredibly inspiring. And so thank you so much for taking the time to join us on Generally Curious. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This is so much fun. And um, yeah, what a great podcast to be a part of. 
And that's it for today's Generally Curious episode. Thanks for tuning in and exploring the world of generalists with us. We hope you're walking away with new insights and a bit more inspiration to mix things up in your own journey. If you loved what you heard, share this podcast with a friend and help spread the curiosity. Stay connected for more stories and adventures. Follow us on your favorite social platforms and hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. Your thoughts and stories, they really matter to us. So please reach out and let us know what you think. Keep your curiosity alive and stay tuned for our next episode, where we'll continue to dive into the fascinating lives of those who dare to think and live differently. So until next time, keep exploring, stay curious. Catch you on the next episode of Generally Curious.